Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Peace and love. I'm Brother Ali. This is the Travelers Podcast and I'm not recording this week from Istanbul, Turkey, which has been my family's home for the past two years and I hope that it will be that way for the many years going forward. But I'm recording this week from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which was our home before that. And it's the place where I launched my career and in a lot of ways started several of the journeys that I'm on now. And I'm here because I am rolling out on the second leg, the East Coast part of the Traveler's Tour. We did the Traveler's Tour to celebrate the podcast, but also to get the word out about it. You know, when you've been a musician for as long as I have been, there are people that pick up and follow along the way, you know, and I never really had one major breakout moment where suddenly the world knows about me. You know, it's been an independent, underground, slow accumulation of the listeners and the supporters that we have. So across social media platforms, there's 500,000 people, it's over a half a million people. Um, and, it, and it goes up a little bit incrementally every year. There's a couple more thousand on each one every year. And, you know, certain things will happen. You know, somebody with a big platform will tweet something to me or at me, and then I'll get a bunch of Twitter followers. Or somebody will add me. Um, you know, maybe some big artist in uh, Poland or Palestine or Turkey or something like that will add me and, and make a post about me on their social media on Instagram. And then I'll notice like I wake up the next day and I got a thousand more followers, you know, little things like that that just kind of accumulate over time. But with those half million followers, I know that a lot of them aren't aware that we even do a podcast. And so the idea of the pod of the tour, the Traveler's Tour, is to go and do musical concerts around the world and um, also to bring a little taste of the podcast. So in the VIP sessions and packages of those tour, of this tour, we, I come out and talk to people about the things that are going on in the podcast. One of those actually turned into an episode of this podcast. If you go back and check out my first episode with Slug, Sean Daly from Atmosphere, you'll see that uh, one of the VIP Q&As was actually with Slug. And we may have some more of those coming up. Stay tuned for that. Uh, but... I'm in Minneapolis launching the East Coast part of this tour. We have two sold-out shows in Minneapolis. And then from there, we'll move on to Ohio, to Michigan and Ohio. And then we go down the East Coast, ending in Atlanta. And then I'll go on from there to do some speaking engagements at Duke University and uh, some, other, some other little stops along the way. And then I'll, I'll go to Houston at the end to uh, be with one of my favorite Muslim communities in the country, which is called Ibrahim Islamic Center. Um, I'll be performing, I'll be leading actually the Juma service, our Friday service. So I'll have my Imam hat back on, inshallah, and leading the Juma there on Friday, the 14th of October. So if you're in Houston, uh, hit them up, and, and I'm sure they would. their doors are open and you could come through. You'll be coming to a... Um, to a Muslim prayer service, you know what I mean? So both men and women, it's best to dress modestly. It's good to come, you know, clean and be ready to take your shoes off. You know what I'm saying? So make sure your socks are on point. <laughs> you know what I mean? The day you're going to be at a Muslim event, that's not the day to wear the old socks from the bottom of the hamper with the with the holes in them. You know what I mean? And um, But that's what it's looking like for me. You can go to brotherali.com slash events and, and you'll, all the tour dates will be there. Well, the ones that are still available, some of them are sold out, but some of them are still, a lot of them still have tickets left. And I'm really looking forward to the whole thing. It's going to be really dope to be back with my man Mali, 
uh, artist from the Twin Cities that's really beautiful and one of my favorite people and also my man Last Word, my DJ, and uh, our homie Dylan, you know what I'm saying, the most hardcore uh, vegan evangelical, the vegan evangelical, <laughs> the, 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 uh, our merchandise person for this run. We'll be back on the road and be back with you. I'm looking forward to it. If you're in any of those areas, uh, please go to brotherali.com and check it out. We also have new music coming. All of that's available on all of our socials. But the best way to connect with us is brotherali.com. Sign the mailing list. And then also we've got a section there called Join, where you can become part of the caravan and be the first to get all the information. This week... <laughs> I mean, how do I, like, what are new ways to say special? Our guest on this episode is one of my dearest friends. I've known him really intimately for 15 years or more. I haven't stopped to actually count the years, but I think, I want to say I met Mo Amer in 20, in 2004, maybe. So that might, I haven't stopped to do the math again, but I've known Mo for a long time. You know, we're people that travel together. We've stayed at each other's houses. He knows my family. Um, I've hung out with him in different parts of the world, you know, in, in, in several countries around the world. And he's just somebody that I know and love very dearly. And I've seen him work so incredibly hard. When I met Mo, he was a local comedian in Texas doing his thing. His family is from Palestine, uh, but they left, uh, you know, fleeing the, the war and the oppression and the colonization and the genocide and the apartheid that's happening in Palestine. And they lived in Kuwait. And then they had to flee Kuwait in the first Gulf War. Uh, and so they ended up in A-Leaf, Houston, Texas, which is a really dope neighborhood, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in America. And that's where Mo grew up. And so when I met him, he was working with his mentor and he was also starting to become known as a Muslim comedian and as an Arab American comedian. Uh, but Mo was always working in the clubs and Mo always had this desire and this dream for his story and his message to become available to the masses via the mainstream. And so I just watched him work so hard. And then he became a mentee and a support act to Dave Chappelle. And he's been traveling and touring and opening for Dave Chappelle for like 10 years. And he's done thousands of shows all over around the world and across the country with Dave. He also did shows for the troops, which is really dope because, you know, he'll, he'll go. He was in Kuwait, you know, perform, performing for and entertaining U.S. troops as a Palestinian who lived in Kuwait and fled the war. This really amazing story that this brother has. Mo has two comedy specials on Netflix. The first one is called Vagabond. The second one is called Muhammad in Texas. If you haven't seen them yet, go and watch them. They're amazing. Vagabonds is really particularly near and dear to my heart because I watched him develop that set over the years. And then he just released his series that he wrote and starred in and produced uh, called Mo on Netflix. Um, the first season is available. You can go and stream it and binge it. It ends with your brother here spitting at the end. I, you know, spit a few bars at the very end of the season, which you'll hear in this conversation was really meaningful to both of us. 
And Mo also is, uh, he has a supporting role in the series called Rami, the, the Hulu series called Rami. Rami is another dear friend of ours. And a lot of these folks are, you know, in, in community with each other. And then Mo is also in the upcoming uh, superhero film called Black Adam, starring The Rock. So Mo is, he's just been working incredibly hard. And to see him at every point of his journey, what it means for him to represent for him, his family, for himself, for the Palestinian people, for all of the displaced, downtrodden, you know what I'm saying, people that have survived colonialism, survived uh, all of these systems in the world. And for him to have done it with the beautiful, brilliant, authenticity, vulnerability, and humanity that he has, man. Mo is in a major, major moment. So for him to take this time to come and chop it up with his brothers, it really means a lot to me. I'm very grateful. We're brought to you, as always, by the Zakat Foundation. We're also brought to you this week by Iman, the Inner City Muslim Action Network, and by BetterHelp. Thank you for being here with us. Enjoy this episode of the Travelers Podcast. You being a person that's like at least trilingual, like I, I know of three languages. I know that you're fluent in Spanish, English, and Arabic, but I don't know how, how many other languages, like you do, you do accents so well, like, do you know like the, the same 10 phrases in like 15 languages, like the, the basic ones? No, I don't. I don't, but I do speak body language, you know, like I can tell. <laughs> I can speak that fluently in all languages. I can just usually tell on people's body language and stuff, but now I just speak... You know, in Spanish, I'm deeply conversational. Very easy. I can have a conversation all day. No problem. And then sometimes a word will escape me and I'll be like, como se dice, como en ese un gordo, pero no es árabe. Like, I'll try to figure out the questions, <laughs> like the word through asking them questions. But yeah, I feel very confident in it. And it's just, um, it's just amazing. Like, that's why I think that when I, uh, the first time I went out after I dropped the series, I went to the, uh, Ortiz um, Ruiz fight in LA and it was mostly Latino based crowd that was there it was my first public appearance so I went out there and, and Mexicanos were like you're one of us bro like just want to let you know you're one of us and it's pretty incredible I think that's uh, immediately because I speak Spanish right it's like this thing that they feel so connected to just mm -hmm. want to be a part of it. And like the shows here, we've been doing shows in Houston and it's all Latinos, right? Like a lot of Latinos are coming out, like some Arabs, but it's predominantly Latino. It's wild. That's dope, man. Yeah. When you speak so many languages, you start to realize like that it is mostly energy and intent and body language. And like more so than the words you're saying are the, the things that are around it. You know what I mean? The things that surround the, it's more vibe than anything else exactly no it is it is but they also appreciate you know the storyline of course and, mm -hmm. and what, what it's about how they tie into it what it mm -hmm. means to them so they feel seen it's amazing it's not even like palestinians that are also feeling that way or arabs or uh you know you're talking about like sudanese people for them or somalis for them like everybody that has had some kind of struggle comes out and watches this part of the show it's dope yeah that's amazing um so man one of the things that i love so much is the scene at the end of muhammad in texas your second netflix special because yeah i you had told me this story and I, I knew that there was footage but i'd never seen it until i saw it on netflix yeah. 
um, where you go to the masjid and <laughs> and they somebody asks you to call the adhan and you're like, I'm not calling the adhan. <laughs> I'm not the one. nothing to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then finally like, call the adhan. You need to hurry up, call the adhan. So you finally call the adhan and someone comes in and says like, you called it early, which, you know what I mean, is a problem. You know what I mean? Like if people are praying their prayer early, it's technically not valid. And people hear the adhan and then start praying. It could be it could be invalid for everybody that prayed because they heard the event. Um, you know, now you say that it makes you feel worse about the whole situation. Right. Yeah, man, it's all, you know. It's, it's so funny. It is a funny thing that happened, and it was something that I was completely pressured into. I, You know, I'm that guy. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I'm so afraid of any little technical, you know. Like, I, I have such a respect for our religion and what it is and what it means, and, and I don't want to make any mistakes, and and then they forced me into it and I make one of the biggest mistakes. It's like, I don't want to do it. And it just in the end, it was a story for, it was like, whatever, however the divine had written it for me, it was um, the way the message was delivered. That this was my father's and the fact that I'm a comedian on top of it, that the audio system, if you haven't seen it, it's the, that I did the call to prayer to without me having any knowledge about it. My father's the one who installed that system in that message. In Palestine, like in Palestine. So you're back in Palestine visiting your family. You go to the mosque. Yeah. First time ever I'm allowed after I get my U.S. citizenship, I go. I go to my grandparents' house from there. I see a mosque in the middle of the village. I say, I want to go pray there. I go pray over there. I, and then all of a sudden I'm forced to do a call to prayer. And I do it 10 minutes early. <laughs> um, and this uh, local you know, village elder walks in and he's, you know, going off, who did the event, is this and that, is he did it 10 minutes early, well, this clock clearly says that it's time, it's like, no, the clock is 10 minutes ahead, I'm like, why don't you fix that clock, <laughs> he's like, wait, 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 I know everybody here, who are you, you know, it was one of those situations, and it was pretty wild, I was just like, man, I can't believe, uh, I can't believe that happened, and then he tells me, who are you, and I tell him who I am, and he, he proceeds to tell me that my father's the one who actually installed the sound system in the mosque, which was just blew my mind. It just absolutely blew my mind. I, Who's, who, who has since passed away? Who has passed away, yeah. After I spoke with him, I just, after he told me all that I, and I went away, I just like, you know, you had a moment with myself and it was really emotional. Had to get it all out. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, and you know, being able to include that footage. And th this is, that's your second Netflix special. So the, the one that we, where the audience really finally got to hear your story and learn about your story was the first one, Vagabond. But then on the second one, to be able to come back and show that footage is really amazing. How far back do you know about your family in Philistine? And like, what is your family's history like before your parents' generation? Uh, it's in Haifa. So it goes back to Haifa, which is Northwest, um, Philistine, and uh, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. That's all I know. I mean, we, I know like my great, 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 great grandfather's names. So we, I have six names, which I'll not say right now, but uh, <laughs> I have some white people showing up in my, my people's houses right now and overseas, so I got to be protective. But, uh, but yeah, my family goes back, you know, several hundred years, if not more, uh, in that region. And I know predominantly, like with my great great grandfather, we were in Haifa. And according to my grandfather, we moved after 48. My family moved this way before I was born, moved over to uh, to the West Bank in Naples, right outside of Naples, a village called Berlin. 
Mm. And then your family left. So like your family left at what point? So before you were born, right? Yeah, they left. My dad, my mom and dad got married. And just like, hey, if you get a job, if you're from Houston, like I am, say two people fell in love and they go get it and and somebody gets a job, your dad or your mother gets a job and they have to move for it. So what happened? My dad moved because he got a job in Kuwait for the Kuwaiti oil company and lived there for, gosh, 30 years, you know, before um, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And and then my parents made the decision to to seek asylum in, in America. Was he an engineer? Like, was that his profession? Like, something electric, or is he, was he just good at? Electric yeah, he was. Stuff? He was no. He was a telecommunications engineer. Uh. So he specifically dealt with, um, you know, telephones and communication. Uh, he was uh, one of the early teams to build a radio station in Kuwait, and uh, he was working on wireless communication uh, with the Kuwaiti oil company. On top of that, I know he owned some electronic shops because he was so well versed in. You know, what's the new technology is coming out. He was hip to it, knew it was coming down the pipe. And he uh, and he opened up these electronics store in Kuwait, which I wasn't fully aware of mm. until much later, until we left after he passed away. Like, I knew he worked with a great old company, but I didn't know he had, you know, like an electronics store. It's crazy, man. Like so many times when there's, especially stories where people are like, fleeing their country and going to other countries like all of the immigrant families that I know there's always a lot of details about the family that don't make it to the next generation because people are just trying to survive it's like we're trying to get set up in this new place we're trying to you know establish residency here we're trying to build our life here we're trying to learn the language we're thrown into this thing and so there are so many bits and pieces of those family stories that don't always get transmitted you know what I mean? And and it's, it's always a curious thing about like which ones got left on purpose. Like some of them are like, we're not going to tell this story. It's not part of it. The, there are so many like new traumas. We're not telling old stuff. And then some of it is just we're too busy. But did you go back and ask those questions? Like, did you do research about your own family when you were writing a series? Yeah, I spoke with my mom. I sat down and, and it was one of those things. Where I was so young that they kept a lot of information from me to to just, you know, preserve my heart and my mind and make sure that I was able to be a little kid and try to enjoy that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And then when I was writing the series, I realized there was just a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah. And I just sat down with my mom and, and had these conversations and you know, I was very open about it. And I try not to bring it up to her either because I know it's painful memories and I don't want to necessarily unearth those things and you know, create any kind of pain for her. You know, she sacrificed so much and, my ancestors have just I just I don't know, I just worry about her. So I try not to. But because of the series, it opened up an opportunity for us to have real conversation. And yeah, I did. I found out a lot uh, about my grandfather, how he was, he was a train engineer. Uh, and you know, when 48 happened and they declared um Israel a state and, and it was supposed to be split 52-48 or something like that percent where my you know my grandfather was out in the on the railroad he was going on a trip um just a lot of stuff that happened afterwards and then the stuff that happened in kuwait when my mom had to endure what happened to my father there was just a lot that i didn't know like i knew some of it but i didn't know all these grand details that that make me who i am today you know truly and a lot of things started to make sense i'm like oh that's why i do this or that's why i like this it makes sense that i'm you know 
that I took this path. So it, it was really, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving out a lot of details, but it's just, it's just so, it's a lot of trauma and a lot of it is just very personal and, and, yeah. you know, very private stuff. So I just keep it there, but it was really a beautiful experience to have, have these um, moment with my mom and, and just have these conversations and, and I admire her just so much. There's such a thing like when we're creating art based on our life and especially because it's got to include other people than just ourselves. Like it's yeah. one thing, it's very easy to make a decision about, well, like, yeah, I'll share everything about myself, all my quirks and my addictions and my like, no problem. But there's really not a way to do that without also having to figure out, well, what do I share about other people though? And how much license do I take to put their stuff on the screen because I know that I've done that with my own songwriting and I've, I've seen so many people struggle with that. Did you come up with a, and like there's times that I've, there's things that I've said that when I look back on them, like that, that probably wasn't for me to say. Mm -hmm. Even though I thought I was praising somebody, like I was, I praised somebody in my family for getting off a crack. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm thinking that they're going to love it. And they're like, yo, now my kids know that I smoked crack. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, damn, I thought everybody knew you smoked crack. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, it wasn't a secret. Anybody who saw the way you were walking for like eight years knows you. But you yeah, know, it's a you tricky know. thing, man. Interviews are really tricky. Like you say something and your intention is so right in your heart, and then it could come off as some something is really hurtful, you know? And I'm saying, like, even our art, though. So, like, it, those things are in my songs forever. And I'm so I'm wondering, like, did you develop? I started developing certain codes for myself for like what might what just might keep others safe by entering into my, me putting them in my art. Did you come up with a code for like how you would do yours or like what was that? What was that negotiation like for you in terms of like, what do I put in? What do I change slightly? Because it feels like some of the things were changed just a little bit. Some of the things that I knew, but the, the spirit was still seemed really yeah, this, as long as the spirit of it is the same, nothing else really matters. I don't necessarily have a code, per se. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about, like, the TV show? Or are you talking about the, the stand-up? I guess both. But yeah, both. And the stand-up is just, like, you figure out along the way, and we have the opportunity to, like, it's different where, you know, musical artists are creating the track, and when the track is done, that's the track, you know? And then you go tour the thing that you put out, where we tour, we tour our act, and then we record it, put it out, and then we have to tour something completely different. Right. It's very, very odd that way. I think it's um I just I just think it's really unfair sometimes. Like, man, you know, I'm, I think some people might want to hear those greatest hits. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't mind hearing hearing Dave talk, do the baby bit live. You know what I mean? Hey baby. <laughs> I wanna see that. You know what I mean? Well, you know, Louis, Louis said that if you do that, people will be happy, but they probably won't come see you again. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's it. That's the thing. They won't come see you again. Where in music, they want to see it all the time. Yeah. They don't want to hear your new stuff. They want to hear the old stuff. It's It's a really tough one where you could be putting out your dopest music. Like in some cases, not everyone is like this, but in some cases, like... You know, you go see John Mayer, you're not really waiting to hear his new track. You want to hear Gravity. Like, come on. I don't want to hear Gravity. It's just interesting. And I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair. I don't necessarily agree with it. It's just how it is. Man, I, I'll say, though, I, I feel you. I feel you. From the artist perspective, from the, like, you know, musician perspective, though, there is the flip side of that. Because 
the best version of our songs doesn't happen until we tour it. And so it's hard for us to go back and listen to stuff that we made like eight years ago or something. It's like, it's like terrible. It's like nails is cringy because now we've actually developed it to where it should be. But then also musicians like our new work, we might think that it's our best work. And it's like, man, year 20 in my career, I'm working on this album right now. I'm like, what if I made the best album in my career? Would anybody even know it? You know what I'm saying? Like there's no, whereas for comedians, like as you go, people are expecting you to continue to be more like they want to see like what's the new thing you're doing. Whereas like for musicians, it's like, man, hurry up and get you're playing your new stuff for you. Hurry up and get back to the old stuff that we like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, it's an odd thing. It's a odd thing. I think it's um, for me, it's healthy. You know, I enjoy it. I, it's, that's like the artist stand up is so pure in that way where I truly just um, I. I get excited and nervous and fun and just have all these like great feelings. Like I'm starting over. Yeah. It's like every time. And I, and I write on stage. Like, yeah, I don't write and then go on stage. I, I figure it out while I'm performing that. So that's like really, um, man, it's, it took me many, many years to have the courage. I'm like, okay, I have five, shows here i have some kind of destination where i need to go to but i gotta fill you know 45 minutes 40 yeah. minutes, 35 minutes and i don't know what i'm gonna fill it with yet but i'll figure it out when i get there you just go on stage and you just do the thing man i've, I've seen you do it in horrible comedic circumstances too you know what i mean because you started like not only in nightclubs but you also were doing these like muslim events and like arab cultural events and those things are the worst possible scenarios for an artist of any kind the worst the absolute <laughs> worst because you have to like in a comedy club or a bar or whatever there's not really any rules mm-hmm. you know you could just go and you have so many things you can pull from and work with when you're doing like uh, an event where it's predominantly Muslims and it's like some kind of thing. This is many years ago, but when it was like that, and you pop in to do it or a cultural event, then there's so many rules and there's so many restrictions. So you're now in this little box right. where before you didn't have a box, and you were just playing around and grabbing whatever you want. And I thought it was actually really good for my muscles to to have to work out in a confined space it forced me to find things that i normally wouldn't go to because i have so many other easier tools to use to get out of something or to create something so yeah man it's tough and man muslim and arab audiences are probably like the worst the most critical i would say the most critical well also it's like because of colonialism like they haven't like they've been like divorced from the idea of art. So like, it's not, not only that there's those rules, but also like the concept of what a comedian is. Yeah. It, it, it always makes me think, like I always talk about you talking about being in Japan and like comedian. Comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like, man, you know what I'm saying? Like how many times do I go to like, uh, like, uh, like a, an Islamic retreat with like great scholars and like I'm there to the, and they're like, Hey, let's get the kids together and try to get brother Ali to rap for him. And I'm like, yo, my song, my songs are about rape and suicide and slavery and sex. And like, they're not for kids. Not for kids. Please stop. <laughs> Don't do this. Yeah, man. 
No, that's how it is. That's how it is. It's how I feel all the time. It's like whenever they do that, or that's why I stopped going to like certain um, Arab events or whatever because I can't just go and be a, a civilian. Mm-hmm. Go and just be a supporter. They'll be like, "Come on, bro, five minutes." You know, like give us five minutes. Do a little. I was like, "This is not how this works, man." Like, right? I just want to support you. Me being here. I want to support this thing that we're doing, this community event. And that's all I want. I will stop trying to throw me on stage to do something. I have nothing for you. Like, I, I've done everything I can. <laughs> like, I'm doing it over here. That's why I'm here. Right. But it's it's an odd thing. I don't blame them. I don't feel like any type of way. I just, like, understand that it must be really exciting to have someone doing it on this level from the inside out. That's a community guy that now is has his own series on Netflix and has multiple specials and tours the world. It's exciting for them. They can't help themselves. So I don't ever get mad or upset or anything like that. I just smile and go, brother, please, like, please just let me be regular and hang out, you know, just let me be part of the people. And I'm not trying to make this about me and go up on stage. I don't want that. I'm here. This is my refuge. You know, let this be my refuge. And it would work sometimes. And then I just like, I just can't. I just got to give them space, you know. With the Muslim artists, though, like we've done stuff with Iman and it's like all artists do in those situations because it's only like 25 of us or something. But I've seen you destroy, like just completely off the head. The reminders are passing their baby around like a blunt. (laughs) Man, yo. And and there was one of them that I missed, like one of those years. I can't remember, like I left for a minute and I came back and you just got done. And I was like. Yo, did Mo do something? And everybody's just dying laughing. Bro, they, they like told me about it later. Like people were telling me your jokes later. And I still like some, those are still some of my, they, you said Kadir Latif looked like a tree that came to life. <laughs> <laughs> I said that. I don't remember. <laughs> Dude, I think about that once a week and laugh out loud. You said something about me and Amir. You said, uh, you turn out the lights, it's Amir Suleiman. You turn on too many lights, it's Brother Ali. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Amir being twins. You know what's crazy, though, is like the, the thing that like uh, rappers or like musical artists and comedians have in common, though, is the idea of like you have your whole lifetime to make your first you know, special or, or album. Yep. And then after that, then it's like now you got to. Because, man, I watched you do the Vagabond set for like 10 years straight. Like I saw, I've seen you do that, some version of that set, no exaggeration, probably 40 times, 50 times in yeah. different, in different scenarios around the world. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Uh, the thing is, is like we toured that so long and then I just kept banking, banking other material. And then it's like, what's enjoyable to do? Yeah. Because it's that. And then there were situations where I was touring with Chappelle so much that it was in the theater it was, you know, how do you, like, when you come to a theater show, they expect a show. You can't wing that. You know what I mean? Like, you can't wing that. But if you're in an intimate environment where it's a club, then then obviously then you can work out a lot easier than you do in a, in a you know, theater environment where it's like 4,000 people. Like, you can't, you can't mess around. Bro. You got to go. You can a little bit. You can be spontaneous here and there and find a little quip here and there. But it's really about, like, what's the set? And so you, I got in that circle, which was amazing, you know, which was an incredible experience. And, uh, I got to work some of amazing venues across the planet. And then it's just like, yo, I need to refocus. And then I put the special out. When I put the Vagabond out, then it really had to get to work. I had to really, really grind again and do all these, 
club dates, which I'm doing now. Like, it never stops. Like, even Chappelle's level, whenever he's done with that thing and he puts it out, you know, he pops into the cellar. You know, nobody's expecting it so many times. Starts doing pop-ups, starts doing so many shows. He has, like, the formula of what he needs to recreate another hour. And that comes with repetition. There's, like, no way to shortcut stand-up. Right. That's the thing about it. At least stand, I can speak for stand-up comedy. There's no way you can just uh, write it at home and then go record the hour, you know, go somewhere and just record it. No, you got to have the audience there. The audience's response there is important. The timing is important. You have to put that all together. And you take so many, like when I did Muhammad in Texas, like I was extremely busy. I was filming Black Adam, um, the superhero movie. And then uh, before that, I was writing my series and I was doing shows with Dave and I was building it there. And I toured a little bit, but then the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. Then I made the deal for the next special and I wanted to get it done before I started filming my series. And I think I did like at least, I think I did like 300 shows before I filmed that special within like a month or something. Like, it was crazy. It was like so, it was like six week spot. And then when you go to New York, you can just do multiple sets so many times. So I would let them know, like, the cell, like, hey, I'm preparing for my special. So they would give me a lot of sets. Mm-hmm. You could do on Friday and Saturday, you could do 20 sets, you know, not hours, but you can mix in. You got 20 minutes set here, 20 minutes set there. And then I would book like the the bar, I would book the, the lounge, I would book whatever I could get to run the hour. I would do that. And then I did, I think I did like 50 sets that week. Does the cellar still have all three of those spaces? They had the cellar, the fat black pussycat, the... And the uh, Village Underground. Village Underground. They yeah, still... yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, they added another... So so the fat black pussycat has the lounge here and there's a bar here. So they completely changed that into another club. So they have four rooms now. Man, when you first got, you know, passed and added there, when you started playing there a lot, like I came and hung out with you for a few nights at the... Like, man, I was so inspired by that and really almost kind of jealous. It reminded me of like early Rhyme Sayers days when everybody was starting and, and like different configurations of different people in our crew that would be together from in different places and freestyling and like there's two or three guys making a song over here and there's like few people traveling to Chicago to perform here and like, you know, that, that sort of, um, that environment, you know, of, of comedians being together and working, like working it out in community but then also like when you're on stage though you're standing there and you are representing yourself but something about the community of comedians is so important man and then seeing dave recreate that in yellow springs during the pandemic was just really special oh man it was so special so special comedians have this camaraderie it's a small community Mm. if somebody it's big but it's very very small if something happens to one of ours and then it's felt immediately everybody hears about it Mm. Our news travels so quick, faster than Twitter. You just know right away something's wrong. Unfortunately, that's when we know something's usually wrong or something's really dope just happened. You know, it's, that's how it goes. But the community is very different. I remember when I was coming up, my mentor, Danny Martinez, would always say, like, uh, I would ask him, like, oh, how was the family hang? He was like, ah, oh, a bunch of civilians. You know, I'm just hanging out with a bunch of civilians. You know, he would use uh, military terminology to describe 
comedians to non-comedians and even like oh, they just civilians. they don't know us cracking jokes and what's going over their heads they don't understand <laughs> they don't get us right they don't get us you know like they don't even know what funny is man do you ever tell the the chess story have you ever told that story before you talking about you know what i'm talking about marriage <laughs> is like chess you know what i'm talking about I haven't really that much. You're talking about Cosby stealing my joke? So the way that I remember it was that when you were first coming up, there were some people that got wind of you and they dubbed you the heir of Bill Cosby. Right, which is like horrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is before Hannibal. Yeah, of course, this is pre-rape. Pre, uh, like, like, we didn't know. We thought he, Cosby was still Bill Cosby. You know? Right. He didn't have all these other attachments. But the, the reason why I say it's horrible it's not only because of that, but also it's just like a really terrible way to describe anybody. You should describe them as themselves, mm-hmm. who they are. You should not attach anybody. Oh, this person's like that. This mm-hmm. person, you might be inspired artistically by certain individuals mm-hmm. and mimic them. Even Dave, even everybody, every single comedian from the beginning of time to today, made until the first one ever, like they all like had an influence of someone or something. Uh, whether it be a family person, whether it be like a relative, whether it be an artist, whether it be not, like everybody's inspired by the thing. I think it's not, a, I don't think it should be, um, uh, it's just, I, I really don't like it when somebody attributes like, oh, he's just like this. No, he's not. These are different people, different artists that have remnants of that person that you think of, but they're not at all. Um, and then the, like the weird thing is, is like I started stand up because I saw Cosby live when I was 10 years old at the Astrodome um my brother took me there and so when i did that i knew i was going to be a stand-up comedian and four years later i started stand up and then so many years later he puts out his last special on comedy central and there's you know a trailer that went out all over the world and it happened to be you know identical like identical word for word as my chess joke and so many people were messaging me around the world congratulations you're writing for cosby like Wow, like congratulations, Mo. Like you invited for I was like, congratulations. I was like, shit, I ain't see a check. What are you talking about? Do you know what I'm saying? So what were the basic what what's the basic part? So I mean I remember the bit because at that time that was your like closing bit. You know what I'm saying? Like when you were still like clean, Allah made me funny. Yeah, yeah, I did the Allah Me Funny thing. We put that out, but I stopped doing that bit actually. I wasn't doing it. I did an Allah Me Funny movie and I retired it at that mm-hmm. like it's been about four years. And the crazy part is, is I was doing Minneapolis with Dave. I was doing a show with Chappelle there. And um, when I did the show there, I decided for some reason to do that bit. I was like, yeah, let's just do it. I haven't done it in forever. Nobody knows this thing. We watched all of money. These guys definitely haven't. Let me just do this thing. And it would be, you know, just be fun for me to do it. Yeah. Then there's this guy on Twitter was like, and after the, after uh, Comedy Central dropped um, Cosby's special, his commercial or whatever, his trailer, he, um, this guy messaged me, hey man, you doing Cosby's material? I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And then he does more research himself. He goes, wait, this is most Comedy Central, explain yourself. Mm. Like that, what the hell is going on? Then I got a text from my boy, Riyad Musa from South Africa, very funny stand-up comedian, um, just hilarious and one of like the original guys in South Africa, one of the early guys. And he he was like, congratulations. I really like 
bro. You're writing for you're writing for you're writing for Bill Cosby. Like, you know, like I was just like, ah oh, man, that's I was like, what the hell are you talking about, man? My friend from uh, the comedian from Egypt, Hamad Salem, hey man, it's amazing. Mabruk, congratulations, you're writing for Cosby. Like, what are you guys talking about? I'm not writing for Cosby. And they sent me the trailer, and I was like really nervous. And I and I uh, and I turn it on, and then all of a sudden I see Cosby saying my joke word for word. Word for word. So I mean, it seems like probably because your name was so like was you were listed as the heir of Bill Cosby. It seemed like if some if his writers were googling him, that they probably found you that way. And then like one of the writers probably. Exactly. That's. I mean, I don't know a hundred percent, but I. Yeah, it feels about right. You know, either one of his writers or he found it. Who knows? I don't know. You know, I have no idea. But all I know is that they took that shit. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no doubt. And then I'm saying when you're in that position, it's like you really can't say anything. Because if you do, then you just become the dude who claims you become the no name dude who claims Bill Cosby stole his joke. You know what I'm saying? You look like a hater. I would never. Like, first of all, it's copyrighted. It probably would have been kept really quiet if I created a stink about it mm. and I, and they would have just cut me a check. That's what would have happened. Mm. You know, it's it's a it's in the All of Me Funny movie. The All of Me Funny movie is copyrighted. It's out, it's already been distributed. Mm. It's like five years before you even put anything out. So it's not even close. It's not even like up for debate. This right. is a this is uh open and shut case. It's not like this is not gonna be like Oh, maybe he was inspired a little bit, and it's kind of similar. No, it's word for word, and here's here's the copy. Here's the here's the copy that built it, and here's the one of Mo. You know, like and Mo did a lot better. <laughs> like that's that's and it's longer too. And so, so I would they would have cut me a check. My whole thing is that I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be known. I want to be known on the merit of what I do, and just being patient and steadfast. Even though for like a comedian that's doing okay to get like a million dollar check probably nice yeah you know that's that just tells you again like i'm not in this for that you know to truly like to have a legacy that's right We've been rocking this entire journey with Zakat Foundation, Z-A-K-A-T. Uh, if you go and follow them on social media, Zakat U.S. will give you a, a glimpse into the world that they're creating around human dignity, around human beings supporting each other, being there for each other in our most horrific moments. You know, when some people are living a nightmare, it's an opportunity for us to be with them and to just connect based on the on being human and based on just the common virtues and the common dignity of, of human life. Also, if you go to their website, Zakat Foundation, you'll be able to see all the things that they do and be able to participate. So many, so many of us are experiencing just real challenges and depression and anxiety and isolation and all of these things. And one of the best ways to combat that stuff is to give to others, to find opportunities, to find people who, even with all the very real challenges that we have, there are people on this earth that are experiencing nightmares that we couldn't even imagine. And to learn about those things and to be able to 
to give to those people and to share with those people is such an affirmation of all the things that are most important. You know, it's an opportunity for us to just get some perspective, gain some perspective. Like, yeah, this doesn't diminish my suffering and my challenges in any way. But it also is an acknowledgement that I do have something to share. I have something to offer others. But then also that shared bond of the human experience and being part of the same human family is so important. I've, I know the people as a COP Foundation and I trust them. They've just shown over and over and over again that there are people that are really dedicated to being creative, to partnering with others. The fact that they support this podcast is one of the many ways that they've shown that. So follow them on social media on Zakat US and then also check them out online, zakatfoundation.org. Find a way to jump in, find a way to participate, find a way to support them and know that you're doing it with an organization that really works with the people that they're helping that do it in really creative ways. And they're just people that I rock with. So we're very grateful to be joined by Zakat Foundation. BetterHelp is a sponsor of the Travelers Podcast this week. And we also get a commission when you use our link to sign up with them. I'm somebody that really believes in therapy and in mental health as a form of self-care as something that human beings deserve access to. Sometimes you, you offer it to somebody like, hey, have you thought about therapy? And they take it as a diss, like, what are you saying? And it's like, no, nah, I believe in this because I've benefited from it so much. So many people in my community are therapists and have gone through therapy. And I just really believe in the power of therapy to help us re-examine uh, some of the narratives in our lives. And to think about things differently. And, you know, we all have our own cocktail of needs and experiences and traumas and anxieties and things that are and triggers and things that de that we're depressed about or anxious about or sad about, you know, uh, relationship issues or substance abuse uh, dependencies and all of these different things that we that we have. But we've all are experiencing them in one form or another. And talking to a therapist and working with a therapist can be extremely helpful if for no other reason than we've got a space that's just dedicated and intentional about us working this stuff out. And oftentimes their work is just in asking us questions that offer us the opportunity to see these things from a different perspective. There's certain stories that I've been telling myself my whole life that in my first session with a BetterHelp therapist, she was able to ask me questions and just take what I gave her and then explain it to me in reverse order that just revealed so much to me about my relationships, my view of myself, my, my, you know, myself as a child and my development. It just gave me so much immediately. You know, I heard about BetterHelp on a podcast and even with all these therapists in my life, I don't live in the U.S. And so I had real barriers to, to care. And people who have barriers to care are exactly where BetterHelp comes in. It's an online therapy platform. Um, the, the therapists on BetterHelp are all licensed, trained professionals with experience. And that matters. You know, you'll see people on the Internet that are advertising their services and they'll say, you know, I'm a, I'm a trauma specialist or something like that or trauma coach or something like that. And it's like. I believe that everybody has a part to play and, you know, there may be people that can be helpful who aren't necessarily licensed, but I'm telling you the process that people go through to get those, their, their license. And then also the fact that that license brings with it a system of accountability that these therapists have to 
navigate so that they can keep their license. But then they also have networks around them of other therapists to help them to hold and process and strategize around the care that they offer us. So it really makes a difference to have somebody that's licensed and trained. BetterHelp has a huge network of therapists that are trained, that are licensed, that are in community. And a lot of times they have different specialists that may be difficult for us to access. If a person, I always say, if a person has uh, a local like neighborhood therapy office that they can walk into and they've got all of the insurance and paperwork in order that they need to access that, and they've got the specific type of therapist that have the specialties that match your needs, that's dope. You should do that. But I didn't have that. And a lot of people that I know don't have that. I don't have insurance. I'm self-employed, you know, and I live in another country. So for me, I heard about BetterHelp and I went and signed up. If you go to our link, which is betterhelp.com slash travelers, use that link because that'll also let them know that we sent them, sent you to them. And then they also support the show whenever that happens. You start by filling out a questionnaire about who you are and what your, what your needs are and what it is that's bringing you to therapy. And then you also talk to them about in this questionnaire, what do you want? Like, what is it that you're hoping to achieve? And then also, what are your specific preferences for the therapist that you talk to? You go through all of this, and then they give you a selection of people that you can choose from. And, or you can ask them, like, just assign me somebody. I just want to start. And so I was assigned to somebody, and the second I got on the phone, you choose. You can start messaging with your therapist immediately. You make your own schedule. They give you a calendar and you go in and choose the time that you want to talk. And then you choose if you want to have a face-to-face session online or if you just want to talk to them on the almost like a phone call. But it's all done in a secure platform that they have. It's all completely confidential. And you can also do text messages and voice notes. And you talk to a person until you feel comfortable with them. If you don't get to a place where you feel comfortable with them, there's a button there to switch therapists and you just change therapists with no questions asked. So head to betterhelp.com slash travelers. Uh, give it a shot. You get a discount for, for mentioning us. We also get something that comes back to the show. And I can't recommend it highly enough because I've had such a beautiful experience that really I was able to, to go around all of my barriers to care and start talking to a therapist. So we are grateful and we're happy to be in conversation and in community with BetterHelp. So when you started working with Dave, or like when you started touring so much, I mean, how many, like, I mean, you've done thousands of shows with Dave. How many years has that, has that been going on? Um, met Dave in 2007. We started doing shows in 2012. Toured, still tour occasionally, but we've done over 2,000 shows together. I opened for him for Equanimity. Uh, I introduced him. He did six tapings for the Bird Revelation, and the sixth one is the one he used, and that's the one I introduced him on. You can actually see when he's coming down the stairs. I'm wearing all black. You can see him. I'm dapping it up, and he's walking by me. That's me. And uh, and then there's uh, of course the uh, Age of Spin and uh, the Age of Spin. No, that was my Age of Spin. I, I was there, wasn't there for that. But I did the Deep in the Heart of Texas with him, and then I did the one he in Atlanta, Sticks and Stones. And then I was just touring. I was starting to write my show and tour, and need to get it together and make sure that I'm ready and prepared and, and remembered all the 
things that Dave taught me along the way. And he really uh, went out of his way to uh, make sure that I, I understood how this thing works and what to expect and how to get ready for it, how to respond and make sure that I'm just ready as an artist and as a person. You know, it's such a trip because, like, I've started to talk on this. First of all, let me just say publicly that, you know, that that time that I spent in Yellow Springs before making the big changes that I made in my life, moving to Istanbul, changing the way that I do business, you know, all of that stuff, like so much. The the I was right at the precipice of all that, and the the last like, I would say, a bit of confidence and validation that I need really came during that time. And spending that time there with you was just really like the person that I am now and the the way that my life is going. Like I really, you know, you've been so, so such a close brother to me for so long. But that moment specifically was really, really, really impactful. And um, I'll just love you and be grateful. I already would. But that that moment was really big for me, man. I just really appreciate it. It's really big for me, too, just to have you there with such a time of uncertainty. You know, I was shortly after that, I was going through the divorce and yeah. emotionally really taxing and writing a show and, uh, man and then the world of the, the civil unrest that happened and was mm-hmm. continuing there the remnants of that and just to feel all that and to have you there and I remember calling I was like please come <laughs> like I knew that it was going to be like a really special thing for you to be there and you ripped it bro you went up there and I remember you just go up and just freestyle for like so such a long time I can't yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know who can do that, bro. Like it's like black thought, most deaf. Common. Common, yeah. And common. And, 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 a, and a and a bunch of white people that nobody ever heard. Of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No, it, it, it it's amazing. And the point is, like, all these names are so like so big, and mm-hmm. like I'm such a such a not only like you're my brother and I care about you, man. What you do it's like inspired there's no other way to describe it it's obviously inspired like for you to be like hey dj what you're doing is not working so shut that off give me any beat well i think i told him play nas and wu-tang beats and just change them up periodically yeah and you just like freestyle for like 10 plus minutes it was crazy it was just really insane to see somebody do that everyone side stage was like this Man, the the biggest one to me was that Donnell is Donnell. So he's always he's always been cool. He's always been just fine. Like never was, but he never was like warm and lovey dovey to me. But I could hear mostly. I was hearing his voice, like while I was rhyming. He was just going, "Oh shit, son!" <laughs> like, dude, hundred percent, dude. When, when Donnell Rollins is cheering you on, like that, that's one of the greatest feelings. And I got off stage, and he was just like, he was like, "Man, I knew the artist was about to come out," you know. And uh, yeah, man, that was that was just a really, it was really inspiring for me for a number of reasons. And one of them was being able to be on stage with y'all, and then all of those people that we're talking about had had cycled through there at some point that summer. And for people to be like, yo, we had a lot of big names on this stage. Nobody is doing what you just did. And I could feel how true that was. You know, as an artist, when you're like, yeah, man, like Allah really inspired what was happening in that moment. And I was just totally comfortable going with it. I was conducting it, but channeling it. And you just think about like how many nights you've had like that. But not only that, but that's when you were writing the series. Like you were doing those shows and 
you know, you were, you were working out your, your, your new material, but also you were writing the series. And one of the things that just really struck me is that for so many people that are around a global megastar like Chappelle, and because of how giving he is, like if you're around him, you're part of everything that's going on with him to the point where it's easy to feel like this is our thing. Yeah. He's so generous in making everyone from, you know, in, independent artists who might have somebody's favorite song like me or Guapale or, you know, folks like that, all the way up to, you know, the biggest stars in the world. You know what I mean? Like I know Prince used to hang out with him and whoever else. He treats us all like we're the same. And so a lot of people just get caught up in the inertia and in the universe of being around someone like Chappelle. And it can be very difficult uh, to then create something for ourselves. Yeah. And what I saw about you in that moment and in that time that I was there is that you were with, you were part of the whole Chappelle universe, but then you would go back and sit outside by yourself with a computer, with nobody cheering for you. There's not a DJ, you know what I'm saying? Nobody's making ceremonial speeches every 10 minutes. Right. And it's just like, man, what's going to take me to the next level is the art that I produce and create. Dave's not going to do that for me. Nobody in the industry is going to do that for me. The, all these people I'm meeting and selfies I'm getting with famous people, at the end of the day, this is going to be about me and this blank page and what can I create and what's the story that I can tell. And that's the that as much as any other part of that, like seeing you do that in that moment really made me realize like, oh, if I want to be where these other people are, I need to create the art that can be next to them. Exactly. Like I can be on stage and kill it. And, and, and Donnell was like, man, son, people think common can freestyle, man. I wish common would, man. You know what I mean? I feel like, you know, and it's like, that's fine, but I haven't made the things that common has made. And that would be what. So right. Not many people get that, man. They get caught up in the sauce, right? They get caught up in it and they just Mm -hmm. see it. And they think that, this is what it is. I'm like, no, man, this is Dave's. This is, we are in support of Dave's genius here. We are supportive. of his, This is a family environment. I'm here to hang out with my brother, my brothers, my sisters. I'm here for that purpose. And, and just to create a, a unifying feeling where in such a moment of unrest, meaning like the pandemic itself in particular, but all the way around, it's like, yeah, guys, you can easily get caught up in it, you know? And and then you, I, I, I just have never been a person that just can just wait, you know what I mean? Like time is going by and it's important to, to have these things that I want to articulate and bring into the world and, and create. And there's timing for everything, right? Like, and you want to be, you want to be timely and you want to be timeless and, and, that sense of urgency for me was like, I need to get this out. How do I get it out? And here's all the possibilities that are open to me. And Dave is so generous. Like you said, he's so incredibly generous, man. Like I can't say this enough where these phenomenal artists that I'm meeting around that we're creating friendships as well. Like he afforded that opportunity. He created basically an artist retreat. Yeah. He was creating that in real time. And, um, he had a vision and we just kept growing from there and growing from there. And it truly became just such a celebration of art, life, being together and perseverance. Uh, and these relationships, like common scored my show with Kareem and Patrick, like they, they came together to do that. And that's because we had that time 
in in um, in Ohio, and you know, Common and I bonded. John Hamm and I bonded. We bonded all these like great people, great artists. And and then when I was doing my show, Common called me up out of nowhere. He's like, "Hey man, do you have anybody to score your show? I'd love to do it." I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> let's please do that." So it became like a no brainer, and, and that's because of Dave. That's because of that there. So. That tells you, like, the more you have going on for yourself, the creating something, and it's not for me either. It's like, it's something that's in me that needs to come out, but it's not for me. It's for everyone. The art that I'm trying to create is such a universal one. And, and that's something I learned early on when I started stand up through Danny, my first mentor in comedy. And, and it was just like, that was the focus was I need to get this out. There's so many people that need this. And it just had, I happened to be the vehicle for all this. Like, great, you know, but I didn't, it's not me. I didn't create myself. This is what it is. This is the situation I'm in. And why not try to do something out of this and make something happen? Yeah. It all came together and it's crazy. Dave called me just recently. We spent like an hour on the phone together. He just watched the show and he was blown away by it, taken away by it. He was emotional and just kind and, had so many good words to say and kind words to say. It was just really sweet, man. It was just really sweet to see that. He's the one who inspired the whole thing. Like when the flashback that you see in episode seven was us fleeing Kuwait to come to Houston. He he's the one who inspired me um, to start writing that. And he Mm. goes, Hey, if we do, we should do a short film for your, for your stand-up special. I remember that. Yeah. He goes, if we do it right, you can win an Emmy. I was like, whoa, wow. Dave Chappelle was telling me I can win an Emmy if I do a short film in front of my special. That's crazy. So then I couldn't stop thinking about the short film. I was like, huh. And I kept thinking about it like four days straight. I was up. I could not sleep. And then I, and then I, uh, I heard that Elvis Presley track, uh, which originally done by Arthur, Arthur Crudup, I believe, is That's All Right. And I heard That's All Right, Mama. Oh, that's all right, girl. Oh, that's all right, mama. Just anywhere you do. Oh, that's all right. I was like, yo, that's the one. And I started seeing the whole vision come together in the shots. And I put it together. And then I came to Dave. I was, uh, he, when he was shooting in Austin, deep in the heart of Texas. I was like, Dave, I figured it out. And, and he was like kind of avoiding me. I was like, no, put the speaker down. I turned on the music. And I walked through the entire scene. And he stopped me in the scene as mouth he goes it's genius <laughs> he goes he goes you shouldn't do it in the special you should save it for a tv show i was like oh tv show and then from there i just kept writing and, and storing uh, different ideas and thoughts and it all came together this way and many years later he was like it's crazy man you just did that and this was like you know eight years and a half nine years later you have your own series and that scene that you pitched me is in there just exactly how you described it that's wild he was just he was just reiterating mo you need to understand like how special that is that's crazy you know so much of his genius is really about acknowledge like recognizing what's going on in a moment and being able to conceptualize it and really communicate it to people you know and it's amazing like <laughs> i remember the first the first night that i was there he he stopped and like we were at the shack and he got the the headphones and he made an announcement like he basically almost kind of made something like a toast. It was like I just want everyone here to remember the importance of this night, 
that we, you know, we're here together and nobody can ever come in and out of this. And no one, this will never, no one will ever know this moment except these people and don't ever forget it. And that, and I'm sitting there watching us like, man, this is amazing. He's right. And then 10 minutes later, he did it again. And then 10 minutes later, he did it again. <laughs> and then 10 later, he did it again. Like almost like he's like, like writing this speech, like by doing it. And then the next night he gave the same speech every 10 minutes, you know. Well, because it's right. It's okay. Cause people forget, man. Mm-hmm. You know, like it sounds, it sometimes when you're looking at him, you think he's just being repetitive and he's just doing this, but he's actually hundred percent right. People so easily forget. And, and this is something that hit me and Azar shared this, our dear friend, Azar, AZ, you know, my, my boy and collaborator, stand-up, great stand-up comedian and, and artist himself, just absolutely brilliant mind. He goes, I think he got it. I forgot who he got it from, but he said like how he goes, name your great grandfather. And uh, I was struggling. I was like, wait, I know the names, but I don't know if that's my great grandfather, great, great, great grandfather, great grandfather. I don't know. He goes, how easily are you erased? He goes, there's only two things you can do to be remembered. It's either the art you put out, you invent something that transforms, uh, you know, humanity that just sticks and, or be like a saint. But how easily are you forgotten? How easily are you erased? I was like, wow, that's so incredible and i just thought about it i was like man rumi's been dead i don't know how many hundreds of years and he's tweeting from the grave you know there's a whole rumi twitter like he's just tweeting from the grave his, his poetry that's like that is incredible right so um that was like a, a big eye-opening thing for me where i just like man i i as much as you can i think dave really understands it so well is where how easily you erased, how easily you could be forgotten. And it's important to just like reiterate those things as much as possible mm-hmm. so that people can remember and, and, uh, and also enjoy this moment even more, right? So it's special, man. It's really special to, to, have, to have those memories. Yeah, he's to go. He created a whole situation where everybody thought that it was impossible. He got testing machines, which made it very, very safe for us to have an artistic outlet where everyone else was stuck in their homes. And, and he spent millions of dollars out of his own pocket to make it happen. It's very, very special. Inner City Muslim Action Network, Iman, is one of my favorite organizations in the world. That's a real grassroots, community-led organization that started on the south side of Chicago. They also have an office in Atlanta. They're led by a Palestinian-American, really dear homie of mine, who lives, grew up on the south side of Chicago named Dr. Rami Neshashibi. And for this particular episode, it's really dope that they're sponsoring and that they're, they're rocking with us because Iman is the organization that brought me and Mo Amr together to begin with. It's how I met Mo. Iman, their work is just so expansive and so broad and it's so holistic which, you know, the real solutions to our problems are holistic ones. They operate from the perspective of being spiritually rooted, of being socially conscious, and of being culturally relevant. And so Iman works with, you know, people that are 
that are uh, coming out of prison and they, they, you know, teach them to rehab homes and then they become contractors and they become carpenters and plumbers and electricians. And they've rehabbed entire blocks on the south side of Chicago in one of the neighborhoods that's the most blighted and most challenged with all of these structural systemic, uh, you know, problems that, that people face. And they have rebuilt entire blocks and turned them into thriving neighborhoods where the people that live in those homes built the homes together, rehab the homes together. And now they become business leaders that employ other people and that train other people. All of this from folks that 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 society said uh, weren't worth very much. You know what I'm saying? Talking about people coming home from prison. And Iman has all of these dope programs, but they also work with artists and they create space for artists to be with the spiritual teachers and with the organizers and with the community workers and with the advocates and activists and all of these people together because we need each other and we inform each other and we, and we expand each other's work by, by being together. So Iman over the, a long time has done these artist retreats where they do exactly that. And I'm telling you that I am the person that I am and what I'm able to offer has been so much developed and incubated in these spaces with Iman. So my relationship with Mo Amr and with Amir Suleiman and you know, so many in that cohort. Mamuna Yusuf also is another person that's been on the podcast. But we're hoping that we can get so many other folks from that cohort. Uh, check out Drea Denur. Check out This Love Thing. Check out Kadir Latif. Check out The Reminders. Check out Mamuna Yusuf, Mumu Fresh. Check out Rhyme Fest. Check out, uh, you know, so many. And um, this is the work that really, really matters. This is the work that really changes things. So go to follow them, you know, and they're celebrating their 25th anniversary. This is a community organization that's the real thing. Iman, Inner City Muslim Action Network. So go to Iman Central and follow them online, follow them on social media. They're doing some fundraising as usual. I'm telling you, these programs are like nothing else in the world. They're genuine, they're sincere, they're authentic, and they're really, really rooted in the hood in terms of bringing people together and fostering the best in us all. Very, very grateful to be partnered with Iman. You know, one of the things about about art, and I mean, I, I think comedy is, is really in the spotlight for this right now. Like, it's really in focus for better and for worse. Um, but so much of what artists, so much of what art is needed for in this time is, is to find ways to examine, explore, communicate around, you know, give people opportunities to explore conversations that are very difficult or almost impossible to have. And one of the things is that like some of the the most amazing, uh, you know, human rights people, some of the biggest people that speak in truth to power and et cetera, like it's almost impossible for them. They will almost never say anything about Palestine. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's a major, major, major problem that I mean, I know you know better than I do. But it's just like, how, how are so many of these people like so outspoken on every subject and they will not speak on that one? What does it mean for you to to be dancing through lasers and figuring out how to say what needs to be said? Because I think you do it amazingly well and you do it. You've had so many of these, but just like, yeah, it's a branding issue. 
You know what I mean? Just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? there are certain things that like, man, you're, you're finding ways to say what needs to be said. But I just, I want to hear from you as like one of the only Palestinian voices in, in this fe- in, in so many rooms that you're in. And so in the sphere that you're in, what does it mean for you to have to figure out how to say what needs to be said and what's it like for you? Man, uh, how do I answer this question? So yeah, I have been dancing through lasers my entire career to the point where early on in my career, people were telling me to change my name. People who really cared about me and just saw that I was very talented and man, you could do so much. Like you don't have to be this broke comedian right now trying to be yourself. Why don't you just change your name and start making money and forget about it? Like why worry about this thing? Like. And I thought that was just like the most insulting thing and also like compliment at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so you're so talented, but like you could just not be you. Like, could you not do that? So it was just, it was really tough. And, and the way it is, you just have patience and like really start, you know, keep, keep pushing forward. Like no matter what it is, it's like keep pushing forward and finding the best ways to articulate yourself on the stage, and deliver these jokes and these premises in an elevated way where it's universal and it's um and it creates a difference and to me like the approach that i wanted to take was um you know everyone it feels like the media or whatever news outlet that exists out there seems to be like really divisive everything Mm -hmm. is so divisive i'm just like man i want to be i want like my thing to have like unity behind it but also uplifting and humanizing towards my people you know at least that so i i've i've had that in my mind for a long time and i just i just really really am tired of all the banter and all the negativity and i'm just trying to keep it as universal and and as compassionate as possible to where people can relate and empathize with the palestinian family like in the show and also for those people who might feel like whether you're Zionist or Jewish or whatever you, and you feel a certain type of way, it's like to see this and to have compassion with the, with the family is really important. Mm-hmm. To have a show like this is important. And then also to have two characters like, like um, uh, Nazir, who's, uh, you know, a Palestinian Christian in the show, and uh, Abba, who is a, you know, a Jewish man with Zionist background and, and beliefs. And so have them to be friends but yet, you know, be free with each other's politics to let each other know what it is. Right. So tender with each other afterwards. Right. What's wrong with having like really heated conversations or debates, but still being friends? What's the big deal? I can't, you can still like care about each other on a human level mm-hmm. and still have your own political views and thoughts. And so that comes down to being human and compassionate. That's why those characters are so important to me in the show. And that's based off of my mother telling me stories about my grandfather having relationships and friendships outside of Muslims or Palestinians or, or let's say Palestinians, you know, because uh, Palestinians could be Christian or Muslim. And, and so, so it was just like really important. I was like, that inspired it for me a lot. And I wanted to show that on modern day television is such a unique thing that you don't really see. When it happens, it's usually something big, right? Some kind of war is happening. Somebody's getting shot. Something like that, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's like a it's like glorifying violence at the same time that creates this relationship. Like, no, this is just regular people, man, having a conversation, playing cards, playing backgammon, whatever it is, 
and they're just having a good time with each other. And so that and, and being able to be free with their opinions with one another. And that's what I wanted to do. And I feel like we created that successfully. Yeah. And just the fact that like they they do have a lot in common, actually. You know what I mean? Like if you look at like they have more in common with each other than they have with you. You know what I mean? Like when you when you when you step to them as a younger dude caught up in whatever you're caught up in, there are certain elements that the two of them, because of their kind of like shared age and experience and cultural stuff where they're the two of them are going to be looking at you a certain way. Yeah, it's it's just really it's just really telling. Yeah, I mean the the the, the number one thing, man, that art seems to do is just humanizing. It's just humanizing. You know what I mean? Like in in a, in the the culture that we live in, and the time that we live in, it's just to be able to to see the humanity in the people that you disagree with or the people that you have a different perspective with. It's just it's everything. It is everything, you know, it is everything. And there's a lot of these relationships that exist in the world. I think that that doesn't, for some reason, the way it's out there, the way it's being portrayed on television and media, it's not, it's not the thing that, that gets the attention. Or anything. I don't know, clickbait, I don't understand. I don't know, I don't care. I, all I know is I can control what I can put out and to the best of my ability and every, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, but I'm trying. I'm trying. That's the point. Is I'm trying to really create something special. Man, it's, there's so many moments like in watching your show and just like knowing you and like seeing you in so many different types of moments in your life. Like, there's so many faces that you make. There's little things that you say. There, there are like certain gestures that you have. Like, man, I, I know that people think it's easy to play yourself. It is everything but easy. It might be one of the most difficult things to do. But the way that you wrote it and the also the way that you acted, like your acting performance, man, is amazing. Like, it's outstanding, man. I cannot believe how sincere and authentic and just just beautiful and human. It's like you really succeeded in that as well. That like, not only did you get the story across, but you really, I think that somebody, if somebody would watch this and feel like they know you or know part of you, I think they would be absolutely right. No, man, it's, I don't know what to say to that. It just thank you. That's why I say thank you. And I just, you know, I was in the moment of something that was so deeply personal. And, you know, I've never, I've never, you know, carried a show like this before. And the, the immense weight that, the subject matter holds uh, and what it means to my like ancestors and, and what my mom has done, like, you know, what she sacrificed for us to be in this position for myself, to have the ability to do what I do with my dad has sacrificed to, to have this moment. It's um, man, I just hope they're pleased with me. That's all I really care about. And I just, uh, yeah, it just it was so much on the line, and it was deeply personal. But it was very, very hard. It wasn't something that was just I got out of bed and did. It was just really difficult, and it required a tremendous amount of focus and discipline to to get through something like that. And I'm just grateful that we had it. You know, also one of the things that I love so much about the show is the way that you incorporate the relationship between people. Like just coming from a leaf. You know what I mean? You got Toby playing your best friend. You got the Mexican sisters, you know, and like for people who know your family and know you, like just know like how real that is. Yeah. Um, you know, that the way that these like stories and these these different like cultures are all woven together, 
you know, right. so so beautifully is really, I think that's a really powerful element of it too. Man, it's just the, uh, like, I just can't believe how many different things you seem to have really nailed. Like each one of these things is incredibly nuanced and it's it's so easy for all of them to go corny. Like any one of these like elements about, you know, you realizing the stuff about your father or the relationship with your brother on the show or the relationship with your lady on the show or with Toby or like all of these it's so easy for all of those things to go to be corny and for your for your first time out like i know you had you know a a, a role in in the rami show and things like that but for your first time out to ca- to really capture and encapsulate all these things and they all just feel authentic they all just feel true they all just feel you know and you don't even have us like your background isn't really acting no it's not. No, my background is not acting. I've never had any like um, television lessons or film lessons or anything like that. I just uh, took what I experienced in high school in theatrical acting, which is very, very different. Yeah. Um, but I was, and my theater teacher was there at the show last night. Eugene Kreisler, she was there. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Chris who also came and would uh, would choreograph a lot of our musicals and different um, depending on what they needed him in, he specialized, excuse me, what he specialized in, they would bring him in. But they were the ones that really taught me about acting and theater and the difference between theater and television. Mm-hmm. To where on theater, you are so big, you know, everything is so, so much bigger on stage. And then when you get to the camera, it catches everything. And it's very important to be as still as possible or be authentic. It's just a, that's something that I, that's where I got it from. And then the rest of it was just like, what is this character based off of? And it's like, oh, it's a it's a story of what if I never found stand-up? What if I still was needing to work under the table? What if I didn't have my immigration paperwork still? And what would my life look like today? It would be very different. So I was exploring those stories and seeing where we could take it. And it was just... Um, just a pleasure and, and fun and hard and just exploration of my past and, um, and just finding the ways to fictionalize it and see what could happen where somebody can just be so involved and in trying to take care of his family and be there and be present for them. And then in turn, losing himself along the way and creating some potentially like spiritual illnesses for himself in his heart. And, and this was, this was like the thing that we, that, that we wanted to, you know, for the character Mo in the show, mm-hmm. push forward, and I can deeply relate to to it. And it was, you know, it's my personal story. Yes, it's grounded in that, but the things that are fictionalized are not real to me. I don't know what it's like to be addicted to lean. I don't know what it's like to be addicted to codeine like that, and what the results of that are, and what potential implications of that, the withdrawals of that. You know, I, I don't know what that is. So it's just really special to to be able to explore that and to hopefully shine a light on that. And, make sure that people don't do it, don't lose themselves, do get help and and get the time that they need to get better. I want to say not only from me to you, but then also because of the fact that I'm always aware of like when people listen to these conversations, you never know what the, you know, who's listening. And, you know, I think we glean so much wisdom just from hearing each other's stories. But one of the like constant themes of our brotherhood, me and you throughout the years is that I've always been, I've always stayed in my little underground layer 
<laughs> of like, you know, like these are the people that listen to me and I've not really tried to step out of that. And from the very beginning, you always have strived to, uh, to bring the message further as far as it could possibly go. And it's always, it's, it's, it's been like a minor point of like tension between us. We, you know what I'm saying? We're like, whenever you would meet hip hop artists, you would be like, yo, do you know who Brother Ali is? Like, you meet some of the biggest artists in the world. And then you would yeah. call me and be like, hey, so and so knows who you are and he loves you. And I'm like, oh, okay, mashallah. You're like, bro, what the fuck's wrong with you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, why don't you try to get, why don't you try to do a song with them? I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? And I did that to Kanye, and it didn't go so well. <laughs> oh, well, we had a different, yeah, we had a different. Me, me, yeah, I was, I was like, he's one of the best rappers alive right now. He's like, he's that. He goes, one of the best, one of the best, like that to me. I was like, oh, whoops. <laughs> Sorry. I wasn't trying to take anything out. I was just saying, there's a lot of people that are one of the best. It's like, there's a lot of great rappers out there. I'm just trying to articulate that. It's, I didn't know you were take it personal. Jesus Christ. I, I don't know. I don't know if he remembers this or not. My guess is that he may have forgot it. But like while he was on the come up, me and him both went to power uh, in, in L.A. And they're, and they're like mixed show. And he went on before me and like it's like these amazing DJs and they're trying to get him to like they're talking about his beats. And he, this is when he was trying to convince everybody he's a rapper. And they're like, OK, if you're a rapper, let's cut the mics on. So they cut the mics on and Kanye was struggling like he couldn't get more than a couple lines out at a time. And they're like, OK, uh, brother Ali, how you feel about cutting the mics on? <laughs> Cause I know these dudes, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I know these guys right. and, and they're sitting him, they're sitting there watching him like say, I'm a rapper though. No, what you don't understand fam, I, I'm a rapper. And they're like, all right, uh, brother Ali, you want to get on the mic? And I closed my eyes and put on the headphones and just blacked out completely off the head for probably five minutes. And I'm like, man, and it, once I started realizing I was killing it, I'm like, all right, I need to stop because I'm gonna stop killing it. Once, once you know you're in the zone, you're out of the zone. So I opened my eyes and he's gone. And um, and they were like, "Yo, you just wrapped Kanye out of it. Like he, like you were killing it so hard after he was struggling that he packed up his stuff and left and wouldn't speak to anybody." So I don't know if he remembers that or not, but but I don't know. But I'm a fan of Kanye. Just FYI, I love. Oh no, his he's shoes. amazing. <laughs> I, I love his music and I love his shoes. His shoes are the most. He like he like completely flipped the game. He made like designer like orthopedics like what are you talking about it's like the most comfortable shoe on the planet and it's like designer like what he's why hasn't anyone done this before <laughs> it's just mind-blowing but but man for all of these years you you struggled so you struggled so hard and anytime you got a chance to be around people you spoke you talked to them and like you told them about what you were doing and you advocated for yourself and you spoke up for yourself. And, you know, we realized like I'm realizing so much about these like self-limiting beliefs that I've always had. I always thought that if some, that if someone were to do that, it would require them to be less authentic. And like I, because I've seen so many, almost everybody that I've seen try to do that, they became some really corny, truncated bonsai tree version of themselves in order to sell themselves to the to the masses. And in seeing the way that you did that and can and continue to do it, and then like what you've delivered to the like your two comedy specials are that are amazing, they're incredible. 
but especially what you did with this show, man, is it's one of the most authentic, sincere, soulful, honest things that I've ever seen. And so I want to say to you, but then also for the people that are listening to this, that you were right, <laughs> that you were right. And, it, and, and when I watch this show, I'm like, and I remember you saying, it's not about me. I don't care. Like, it's not about me being known. My story, this story needs to be known. Like the truth that we're carrying needs to be known. It's not about like, I don't care if I'm famous or not. I just need this story to have the right platform. Yeah. And, and when I watched your show, and then especially I get all the way to the end of it, and I forgot that you had me rhyme on it because I was so tied up. I was so caught up <laughs> in the story. And there's times where I'm like laughing in my, in my studio by myself and I'm crying in my studio by myself. And we get to the end. And I hear my own voice, like I just, I broke down and it, I recommitted in that moment, probably in a way that I never have before, to like my gift and my story and the things that I have to say deserve to be on a bigger platform. And I don't, I don't know what to do about that, but at 45, after you've been telling me this for 15 years, I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I don't know what to do about it, but... I have been shortchanging myself and it took all of this stuff for, for me to see that you're completely right. Well, that's why I wanted you in the end. Like I wanted you to be the cap of the series. I want you to be the bookend of the series. Like I'm always thinking about you and how I can like, just because you're dope, not because you're my friend, because you're just, you're just so dope. Like that's always been it. It's like, being my friend is just, and my brother is just like a, a bonus, a massive bonus, the most important part of the relationship to me, you know? Uh, the, the fact that you can just do what you do like that in, in a, like, it took you like an hour. I don't know. It just came back so fast. It was just unbelievable. And man, I always want you involved in whatever I do. If it works, you know, it's as long as it works. There's a lot of people I wanted in the show. And I want a lot of voices heard in the show. It's just so much you can put into eight episodes that are half hour series, like, you know, which is, you know, technically like 22 minutes, right? 22, 30 minute episodes. So it's just really, really hard to fit all that in. And just when your voice came on right after the, the way the show ends, it's just like a most beautiful thing ever, man. I'm so happy that that's forever will be there you know like it's, it's gonna be there forever that's just the way it is season one Bo, the story of my family the story that's grounded in my dna is bookended by my brother like that's makes me so happy and it's fire too it's like fire. yeah i'm kind of nice all of this sacrificing all of the work that you've put in all of the sleepless nights that you've had all the traveling all the difficulty with your with your wife former wife all of the just all of the stuff, man, that you've, that you've put into this. Like you have worked as hard as anybody that I've ever known. You know what I'm saying? And I've known that about you since before I even knew you. Like, man, all of it is, all of it is, is really, really inspiring, man. It's, it, and, I, and I'm very grateful because it's not only good for you, but it's good for all of the people that you have on your back 
you know what I mean, for all of your ancestors and the, you know, the people of Palestine and the Muslims around the world and all the immigrants around the world and all the, all the heavy guys around the world. Like the fact that you went ahead and shot the show, you're at, you, when you shot that, we're at your heaviest weight and you're a boxer. So I've seen your weight fluctuate like crazy. There's also something as a big guy. Cause I, like, I'm just realizing, like I've been in therapy the last year and I'm just like, Oh, I always told myself, well, I can't, I can't go to the next level cause I'm fat. When I lose all the, when I stop being fat, then I, maybe I can do it. Never realized I thought that. But seeing you shoot this show at your biggest weight, you know what I mean? It's just like, dude, man, it's 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 um it's deeply instructional and inspirational. And it just is giving me and I don't know how many other people permission to like I have made I'm a working on that too, man. I'm yeah. working on that too, but it's like that I'm still who I am. I'm still the same, like I can still do that. I for for Black Adam, I was doing like stunts and getting thrown around and I have to get up and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. And uh Well, and I've seen I've seen you lose 50 pounds in yeah. in, a, in a couple months. Like I know that you're capable of doing that. Like you're, you know, you're an athlete. Like you know I think it comes down, yeah, it comes down to just like uh the depression and where I was and being, you know, going through a divorce and going through going through so much while you know trying to create so much and then there's there's a tremendous amount of weight on my shoulders at the same time it was just hard and my body was hard to get into that rhythm and i'm in a much better space where i think that it'll be really funny that he's in shape in mexico like eating clean and like lost weight it's like dude i don't want it. it's a spoiler alert but uh yeah but i mean you ended the show in a way that's like they have to order another season. Like this season's not complete. You know Hopefully, I mean? yeah, exactly. Hopefully. Oh man, they got to do it, man. They have to. I, but 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 another but more seasons have to happen on in 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 whatever scenario it is, man. The way that the show ends is like this is not an ending. No, no, it's not. It's a it's a cliffhanger for sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm not gonna hold you, brother. I love you, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for talking. Of course. You it feels so serious, man. We're supposed to be funny and have a great time. It feels so serious, but that's what happens. I'm just exhausted and been doing all this stuff, and I'm sorry, man, for the schedule. Nah, man. I, I know how I know how much you got going on, brother. I love you so much, man. You're one of my dearest brothers in this world, man. I love you so much. I love you, brother. I love you. Salam alaikum, Rato. Alaikum salam. Couldn't be more grateful to our brother Mo Amr for being so generous and gracious with his time. This is an extremely busy time for him. You know, I usually try to, you know, give my friends a little air when I know that they're having a moment. You know, his his series on Netflix just started streaming. Go and watch that. Binge that joint. Run it up. Watch it over and over and over again. I guarantee on your third and fourth time through the series, you'll catch things you didn't catch the first time. And it's just really an enjoyable enriching experience to watch not to you know i'm not just saying that because i'm spitting at the end of it that's a good reason to get to the end you know it's only a few bars before it cuts off but man i'm so honored to be part of it but mo is not only promoting that but he's also doing comedy shows six nights a week uh he also is pr uh, starting the promo for black adam which is the superhero film starring the rock that mo has a role in as well I mean, I'm just so grateful that he sat down and, and was so generous with his time and with his wisdom and with his insights and everything. Your brother here, Brother Ali, I am on tour. 
on the East Coast part of the Travelers Tour. So go to BrotherAli.com, sign the mailing list, check out the events section, check out the merch. We got merch for this podcast with the super dope design that was done by Mark at Medina Hip Hop. And we're so grateful to him for doing that design. But you can find T-shirts and crew necks. You can also find, I think there's still a, the Uncle Sam Goddamn uh, commemorative merch that's up there as well. It says, welcome to the United Snakes, land of the thief, home of the slave. Some of that stuff is there. You can check out all the merch that we have there. Go to the event section, see all the shows. Go to the join section, get down with the caravan. That's the best way to keep in contact with us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for welcoming, welcoming us into your life. We know that there's a lot of things pulling at you for your time and your attention and your energy and your focus. And so we're grateful to share the things that matter to us and the people that we love and the things that inspire us with you. And you're absolutely a part of it. Special thanks to Amna Mirza, to Mansour Panawala, to Mark from Medina Hip Hop, to Ant who produced the music for this this show. Special shout out to DJ Last Word, to Darian Washington, anybody that's contributed and helped this podcast happen, we're grateful to you. Traveler's Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, a.k.a. BK1, and it's a product of Traveler's Media. Much love. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.